On the night of March 9, 1858, Thomas L. Kane was trudging through a heavy snowstorm on his self-appointed mission to end the Utah War. He had convinced Brigham Young and church leaders to extend an olive branch to the Army expedition by offering them large quantities of food and supplies. But now, over 25 feet of snow buried the mountain roads. With temperatures plummeting and winds howling, Kane found himself growing weaker while the storm raged around him. Sensing that he might not survive, the sickly Kane decided to prepare for the worst. He wrote a letter to Alfred Cumming, the incoming governor of Utah, traveling with the army. Dear Sir, in case of accident, I write this memorandum to apprise you that I am the bearer of overtures of peace from Governor Brigham Young. Letters from President Buchanan throwing light upon my position will be found upon my person. My other letters and effects I beg may be forwarded to my family at Philadelphia. But three days later, insensible and frosted, Kane would ride into the army camp. On this episode, we explore Thomas Kane's mission of peace to Colonel Albert Sidney Johnston and the Utah Expedition. I'm Nate Olson, and this is Adventures in Mormon History. It took Thomas Kane four to five days to travel the 113 miles from Salt Lake City to the plains of Wyoming, where the U.S. Army was camped at Fort Bridger, Camp Scott, and the Ecclesville Shantytown. He was escorted through the mountains and canyons by a small group of Latter-day Saint mountaineers, led by Porter Rockwell. Rockwell led him through a maze of compound ranges and through passes, no passes such as I have ever read of, even in children's storybooks of alpine hunters. This was to prevent Thomas Kane from being able to reveal their defensive positions and supply lines, but Kane would later write, I couldn't have revealed anything even if I wanted to. About three days from the army camp, Kane met a snowstorm that he feared would cut short both his mission and his life. But he survived the storm, and three days later, his mule ambled straight through the defensive perimeter into Camp Scott. Now, of course, a rider, least of all one coming from the direction of Salt Lake City, should have been challenged long before coming into the middle of the camp. Kane wrote to his brother Pat, I got into camp without brushing against a sentry. I will say that I could have got in among the cowards otherwise in safety. The contrast between the undisciplined, apathetic defenses of Camp Scott with the mountaineering skills of Porter Rockwell and the escort party led Kane to observe, I did see then, if I had doubted before, how completely these mountaineers had our foolish herd of soldiers at their mercy. Needless to say, Kane's arrival created a sensation in the news-starved army camp. One French correspondent accompanying the force wrote that Kane literally fell as a bombshell in the midst of federal officers, and the reaction among the soldiers was not positive. Major Fitz John Porter of New Hampshire, Johnston's adjutant and personal friend, wrote his reaction in his journal. Captain Robinson reports the arrival of a son of John Kane of Philadelphia from Salt Lake City. He left the States via California and been in Salt Lake City eight days. I cannot believe him aught else than a self-constituted ambassador. Comes with a proposition from Brigham as insulting as his November salt letter. Kane has nothing to do with us. Nothing but orders can stop us when we are ready. 
The next morning, refreshed and defrosted, Kane rode the two miles from Camp Scott to Fort Bridger to meet with Governor Cumming and Albert Sidney Johnston. One of the officers, Captain John W. Phelps, described the scene of Kane's meeting with Colonel Johnston. Kane, without looking right or left, moved straight forward to the colonel's tent and seemed as if he wished to ride into it instead of stopping outside. So near did he urge his horse to the opening. The colonel did not come out immediately, which seemed to look and be felt as a check. Presently, the colonel came partly out, being stopped apparently by the man's horse, whose head was nearly in the opening. Johnson asked the new arrival stiffly, Who are you? Kane replied blithely, Are you Colonel Johnston? Yes. Well, I am Mr. Kane from Pennsylvania, bearer of dispatches. I ask your permission to see Governor Cumming. I will see you afterward. With that, the sergeant led him away to meet the incoming governor. Captain Phelps grumbled, There was an absence of that proper deference due from one of his pretended character to an officer commanding an army of the United States. Major Porter wrote even more savagely that Kane supposed the gawking soldiers surrounding him were an admiring audience when really they were laughing at his conceit. Kane was led like an ass because he was an ass. And so Thomas Kane's mission to Johnston's army was not off to an auspicious start. When he had unexpectedly arrived at the gates of Brigham Young's home in Salt Lake City, Kane found himself among people who, though many were not convinced of his proposals, they nevertheless recognized him as a friend, a man of good faith who was seeking their welfare. But at the army camp, Kane enjoyed no such reception. At a time when Latter-day Saints were overwhelmingly despised, both at home and abroad, Thomas Kane's love for this strange people baffled everyone. From the army, to President James Buchanan, to his parents, to even his wife Elizabeth, nobody could understand why he cared so deeply for the Mormon people. This, in turn, fueled lifelong rumors that Cain had, in fact, secretly converted, which would, in the eyes of the army, make him a spy. One officer wrote home to his wife, My men want to hang him. Say he is a Mormon. I'm half persuaded they may be right. While Kane's relationship with Johnston had started badly, it soured even more over the next few days. Johnston, suspicious of this unexpected bearer of dispatches, assigned Captain Cuvier Grover of Maine to keep an eye on Kane's movements, ostensibly to keep him safe from the soldiers who openly grumbled about hanging him. Grover was the energetic provost marshal of the 10th Infantry Division and had been charged by Johnston to oversee and ferret out Latter-day Saint agents and spies around the army camp. And the task of watching Thomas Kane openly move about the camp and his frequent late-night meetings with Alfred Cumming greatly nettled him. The strain became too much one day when Grover was listening just inside earshot while Thomas Kane conferred with Governor Cumming. When a soldier came to relieve him, Grover loudly ordered him, You keep an eye on that damned Mormon. Which both Thomas Kane and Alfred Cumming heard clearly. Kane, with his hair-trigger sensitivity to insult, viewed this as a personal affront, not from Captain Grover, but from Colonel Johnston. Things only got worse when Colonel Johnston invited Kane to join him for dinner. According to Albert Brown, a New York Tribune correspondent with the Army, such an invitation was no small compliment when rations were so reduced. But when Johnston sent an orderly to invite Kane to dinner, 
the orderly instead arrested him and turned him over to the camp provost marshal, Captain Grover. This was, Kane wrote, a personal indignity of the gravest order. In a reckless move that would endanger his whole mission to end the Utah War, Thomas Kane fumed in a letter to Colonel Johnston that his conduct was unbecoming an officer and a gentleman, and challenged the colonel to a duel. I have to request immediate satisfaction. My friend Cumming will make the necessary arrangements for our meeting. Alfred Cumming, however, refused to deliver the letter. He explained that under the Code Duello, the code of honor that set the ground rules for dueling, Kane had not adequately explained what Johnston had done and had not given Johnston a chance to explain himself. Also, since a gentleman only had to answer such a challenge from another gentleman, the letter should speak to Kane's right to begin an affair of honor. So, Kane wrote out a revised letter to Johnston. You thought fit to issue an order to have me arrested and placed in charge of your provost marshal. Kane thus demanded full explanation and retraction at your hands, as he could not pass over such an indignity without becoming redress. Next, Kane launched into an explanation that he came from a prominent Philadelphia family and that Alfred Cumming could vouch for his social position and my right as a gentleman. Yet Cumming was not eager to facilitate a duel between Kane and the expedition commander. He declined to deliver the letter on Kane's behalf or to serve as his second. Not finding anyone else in the camp willing to act, Kane marched off to Johnston's tent the next day and personally delivered the letter to Major Porter. Now, Johnston was not a stranger to the cult of dueling. In fact, he walked with a limp from a duel he had survived against a fellow officer in the Texas War of Independence. But he was not anxious to further strain tension within the camp. He returned a half-hearted apology, attributing the whole thing to a simple misunderstanding. Kane snatched at this reply and wrote to his brother Pat that he had vindicated his honor against Johnston, who he wrote had both apologized and humiliated himself. Having resolved the matter of his personal honor, on the 15th of March, Kane delivered Brigham Young's letter to Johnston, offering large quantities of salt and supplies as a gesture of goodwill. Johnston rejected it out of hand, declaring that he and his army would starve rather than receive supplies from Brigham Young, and if willing to do that, he added ominously, the Mormons must fear our zeal when directed in another way. The next day, Kane tried again the role of peacemaker. He explained to Johnston that Brigham Young's recent offer of salt and supplies was meant as a peace offering, and that by rejecting it out of hand, the Mormons would conclude that the army was not interested in peace. Johnston replied that his summary rejection of the offer, while blunt, could have been much harsher. Kane then tried the narrative he had written to Buchanan. That is, he argued that within Utah, there was a large peace party with Brigham Young at its head, and he was struggling against the other faction of militant hawks. In making this claim, Kane hoped to show the need to meet Brigham Young halfway, to bolster him in his efforts to lead the peace party against their internal opposition. But this narrative had the opposite effect on Colonel Johnston and his staff, who now saw their enemy as divided and therefore vulnerable. Major Porter wrote, Kane's admission of Brigham Young's weakness and the existence of two parties was an important one to us. The conference was a long one, but ended without the colonel changing his opinions. 
It's unclear if Thomas Kane understood just how deeply the command and staff of the Utah expedition had come to hate the Latter-day Saints. Major Fitz John Porter, Johnston's adjutant and personal friend, wrote a truly chilling recommendation to headquarters Department of the Army for how the expedition should deal with the Latter-day Saints once they made it to the Salt Lake Valley. The Mormons are armed for the fight, and no gentle action will quell them. The rebellion will only be quenched by thorough extermination. They are monsters in minds and morals, and their children are worthy of their fathers. This people deserve no mercy at the hands of government. The porter would not confine such bloodthirsty ruminations to his journal, but send official correspondence to army headquarters that the expedition should thoroughly exterminate the Latter-day Saints, both adults and children, without mercy, gives a sense of how hopeless Thomas Kane's mission of peace may have been. By the end of the week at the army camp, Thomas Kane had nothing to show for all of his efforts. Upon arriving at the camp, he had been met with suspicion, distrust, and contempt. He had been arrested as a spy and had, in a moment of personal pique, challenged the expedition commander to a duel. Then, trying to persuade Johnston and his staff to reciprocate Brigham Young's gesture of goodwill, he had instead inadvertently made them believe that the Latter-day Saints were weak, divided, and vulnerable. Peace seemed farther away now than ever before. He wrote home to his family, The graceless hounds have chased my peace out of sight, into the mountains again, where I pursue her with only the faintest hope to guide me. It was in this moment that Cain struck upon the idea that would prove to be his single greatest contribution to end the Utah War. On our next episode, we'll explore how Thomas Cain, to the shock of army leaders, finding that he could not persuade them to reciprocate the church's olive branch, instead found a way to make the whole army expedition superfluous. I'm Nate Olson, and this is Adventures in Mormon History.